Greetings, Radio Land. Welcome back to the California Work Comp Report with your host, Corey Olson. This week, I'm here with Dr. John Alchemy to cover some frequently asked questions about impairment reports. How are you doing tonight, John? I'm doing great. How are you, Corey? Doing well. I'm doing well. Today's topic is commonly asked questions surrounding impairment ratings, and that could be for any stakeholder in the uh, process of workers' comp as it pertains to California specifically. But these questions could also be relevant to people who are having any sort of impairment rating analog or similar sort of thing done all around the country. But mostly these, these sort of questions and answers pertain to impairment rating in California. We're going to start out with just sort of a, a question and answer session about, you know, these these things and what, what it's helpful to know as an injured worker, as a doctor, uh, even as an insurance adjuster. So I'll just start out with the sort of most broad reaching question. Um, what is an impairment report, John? The impairment report is a report that's universal across um, any state and all workers' comp systems. And Basically, it's the end of active recovery in a claim. So when someone gets hurt, they have a first injury, they have a first injury report, um, there's subsequent treatment, uh, maybe there's a surgery, therapy, some medications and things like that. And then the doctor at some point needs to determine that they are not going to get any better than they are right now. And that's the term maximal medical improvement. Um, Different states will call it different things. Um, California calls it a, a permanent stationary report or a PR4 report. But the bottom line is that, that in any system, when the, when the individual has reached their maximum improvement, they are determined to be, quote, maximally medically improved. Um, and that's really what this report does. This report is a snapshot. It talks about how the patient's doing, how well they're functioning, what the measurements are, what the relevant diagnostic tests are. And then there's a section in the report that determines how much loss there is based on either pain or function um, and assigns it some type of value. Um, and, and that's kind of where the, all systems um, are common. Each state then may have a kind of an add-on saying, well, you know, are there other factors that, that you know, that's not work-related? We call that apportionment. Some states recognize that, others don't. Um, and then there's, um, you know, certain states say, well, what's the future care going to be? And you know, that's like, what do you need going forward? Do you need more medications, more therapy? Will you need a surgery ultimately, et cetera? So, so in listening to this podcast, just understand that there are commonalities and there are differences between the states, but the universal of all states is an impairment report that is written and rendered at the time of maximal medical improvement. Okay, so just one more time, John, to elaborate, maximal medical improvement, or MMI, um, as it's known in California, is saying this is as good as you're going to get after your uh, injury, after all the um, treatment and other such things are accounted for. Yes, yeah. And, and the AMA guides that most states use, um, you know, will use something called the um, AMA guides, and there's different versions. And basically, each version, you know, carries with it the this, this same definition of MMI, basically, no additional improvement is expected in the next 12 months. So that's what they, that's kind of the, the rule that the American Medical Association uses for the AMA guides to permanent impairment. Um, some states that don't use the AMA guides may have a slightly different administrative definition, but the concept is the same. Are there any scenarios in which after a year, somebody just magically got a little better than they were? 
Well, you know, there, there may be some scenarios where someone has an unexpected recovery. Um, in those situations, typically what's done is patient will present and say, you know what, um, the pain I had when we did our MMI report or our impairment report is now gone or I'm able mm. to do more things than I could at that time. Mm. And it's significant because I think I could go back to my old job or I could do more um, or I need to have my impairment rating, you know, revisited and stuff like that. And, and that does happen um, at times. Usually it's the people coming back. They're saying, you know, I want some of my restrictions removed because I don't need them anymore. Um, and that's usually addressed in, in like a supplemental report. Sometimes if the insurance carrier or the state needs more clarification, maybe they'll have you rewrite the report, redo the rating. But the issue is, is that by the time that happens, the claim has already been, you know, quote unquote, settled. Benefits have been paid out. Mm -hmm. um, baseline has been established. So it's really not that common, but it's mm -hmm. not possible that that wouldn't occur. Hmm. Not much in the way to account for medical miracles that happen out of nowhere. Well, you know, most, most people, like I said, if, you know, after a round of, you know, treatment and, and the usual tests and things like that, they kind of settle down into their, you know, functional level and it becomes pretty apparent to everyone. And there's usually not too much disagreement around that when that point is reached. The next question is, uh, how will an impairment report change uh, care or work for the injured patient? Well, in most situations, um, and I'm going to speak for California because that's um, primarily where where you know I practice and where you know rate fast and foreign, um, the the patient is required to be seen every 45 days. So no more than every 45 days. You can see them less than 45 days, but not more. Mm -hmm. um, once you have an impairment report, you are no longer bound to have that uh, mandatory visit frequency. So maybe, um, maybe you're doing fine at MMI report, and I say, you know what, um, you're not taking any medications, um, you're back to full duty, you have your impairment report, you know, of value X, um, and, you know, I think you're doing great. However, I'm probably going to ask that you come and check with me in six months, and we'll do a functional check, make sure everything's doing fine, no recurrent symptoms, et cetera, et cetera. Or... You might be an individual who's uh, taking some medications periodically. Hey, I got to take three or four Motrin a week. My knee flares up when it's cold, um, you know, and, you know, sometimes after I do some extra chores around the house, it gets stiff and it swells. Sometimes I'm, I might need some therapy. So in a situation like that, I might say, you know what, I'm probably going to see you um, in eight weeks for a functional check. And for sure, every three months, because, you know, you're going to need a medication refill and I can't just write a permanent uh, refill of ibuprofen for the rest of your life and not see you again. No. So, you know, people need to come back at varying intervals um, that are more medically driven, I would say, than administratively driven, um, for sure, in California. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, well, say I need continuing care of sorts. Will my care be stopped by any point? Like, will the insurance company cut off my, you know, treatment or anything after MMI is reached? Well, that's a great question, and the answer is uh, it all depends on how the doctor drafts up the impairment report. In California, um, there is a section that's called future care, and there the doctor has to explain to the stakeholders um, what kind of care is going to be anticipated in the future. So this could be medications, therapy, a visit with a specialist, an injection, an updated x-ray, um, durable medical equipment. Maybe you're going to need a splint replaced because they become worn after six months and that kind of, mm -hmm. type of thing. 
So that's all laid out in you know the California impairment report as an example. Now, um, when cases are quote unquote settled in California, we have two settlement formats. One is um, I'm going to give you a, a, an amount of money in return for no responsibility of taking care of you anymore for this work comp claim. And that's called the compromise and release. Mm. So means I get, I get a payment not only for my functional measurement loss, you know, and the impairment, my whole person impairment, I get a value based on that of money. But then what the insurance company can do is they can say, hey, we're going to take all of this future care that this doctor says, you know, um, that you're going to need for basically the rest of your life to take care of your knee. And we think it's this amount of money. So we're going to put functional loss amount of money plus the amount of money for your lifetime future medical into one check. And if you choose to take that, then um, you will not have access through the workers' comp system for ongoing care for this injury. So settlement can be one of two ways, just to clarify. One, it can just be a payment for functional loss. Yes. The added benefit of ongoing medical care covered by the insurance carrier for the life of the employee, Hmm. or it can be a compromise and release where there is a larger sum typically that is offered to the injured worker to sign. And in return, their care will be stopped by workers' comp with the understanding that the money they're receiving, they are to use to take care of themselves. Hmm. So assuming that the uh, employee or can, can the, can the injured worker then can they settle and say that they are, you know, insured with their own, with their very own insurance plan, or more interestingly, just for the sake of asking, uh, with the insurance plan, like a, an actual just medical healthcare plan through their work, can they then go and get treatment on their pain through their, you know, personal medical plan? Well, it all depends how their health plan is going to, um, perceive the, um, the pre-existing conditions, you know, mm. and that, that's a common issue politically right now for us about, you know, how does health plan in general um, perceive um, pre-existing conditions and health plans traditionally in my experience have not been very welcoming for work comp because they view workers comp as a system that is set up funded by itself and, you know, should be taking care of the work injuries. Now, when there's a settlement, um, you know, the idea is, is that, oh, you'll take this chunk of money and you'll use it to, you know, to either, you know, purchase your medications or doctor's visits and things like that. Mm. Um, but it doesn't always, you know, pe- people don't always spend that money. There, there's no mm. requirement that they have to spend it on their, on their injury. They, you know, could spend it on something else. They basically get a, a chunk of money. Um, so, so the answer is, you know, maybe, maybe, yeah. Now, there is something um, known as the Medicare set-aside. So people that are nearing Medicare age, the insurance company, if you choose to compromise and release, will actually take that money and give it to Medicare, okay? And then Medicare will then accept that condition and care for it just like they would, you know, another health problem like hypertension or Mm -hmm. diabetes or something. So it kind of gets rolled into Medicare. But again, there's a Medicare set-aside and the money really doesn't go to the patient directly, it goes to Medicare for the benefit of the patient, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So not a very good idea to cash out on it and then run straight to your doctor with your personal insurance plan and be like, hey, I got this injury that, you know, that still needs treating, but I'm paying for you. 
you know, yeah. and they can check with their, you know, health service rep for their health plan and stuff and see what the rules are around workers' comp. I mean, it's a very common, you yeah. know, a question for insurance companies. So, um, so, you know, it's kind of buyer beware. Just, you know, check with your insurance company if that's something you're planning on doing with your compromise and release. You know, just make sure that you really understand that, you know, that that is an option. Hmm. Or not. Yeah. Um, so I've reached maximal medical improvement on my injury. Um, but I just, I cannot return to work. The doctor says no, everything like that. What if I can't return to work after, uh, after the impairment report after MMI? Yeah. Another, um, another frequent question. So as when people get hurt, just to back up and give a little history here, the employer, um, has to determine, what the, what the work limitations are during the active phase of the treatment. So, for instance, if I break my leg, I can't stand on it, weight bear on it for, like, let's say, eight weeks. Um, so maybe my employer has modified duty for me where I can sit down and do it. But maybe I'm a construction worker, and they don't have anything except in the field. So the employer cannot accommodate my, my partial temporary disability, which is I have to sit down. Hmm. Um, However, you know, at eight weeks, hopefully my leg is healed, maybe a little therapy, um, and I'm up and running again, and I'm able to go back to work. Mm -hmm. Um, At that time, my impairment report says full duty, and the employer basically has to let me come back to my job. Mm -hmm. Um, That's for some reason I've been laid off or the company's gone out of business or something like that. Um, However, when... If, if I have a permanent condition, like let's say my leg is crushed and I have chronic pain and I'm never going to be able to stand more than 20 minutes out of 45 minutes, you know, mm. at my, I just, I can't do prolonged standing. Mm. Well, the employer can look at that and say, you know, um, maybe we could uh, had, or maybe we did make some temporary modifications and found some office work for you. But on a permanent basis now, um, we cannot, you know, extend that job to you because we simply don't have the work. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's just not in our our business model. Um, We just don't have any work that that would be reasonable to allow you to do that. So in that case, yes, you can be let go from your job. Mm -hmm. And most patients, by the time they, you know, run into MMI, they have a pretty good feel from their employer whether or not they're going to be able to have a permanent accommodation or not. Yeah. Um, If there's not, you know, then the system has some features in it that allow for what we call a qualified injured worker. And a qualified injured worker is one that is not able to return to their usual and customary work and needs to be retrained. Um, And occasionally from time to time, the benefits, you know, that allow you for retraining, you know, vary on price and duration and all this thing. But at the end of the day is that if you can't go back to work, you really have two options. One, you can see if there's, uh, you know, job retraining benefits available um, for you through the work comp benefit or find a job that will allow you to have your accommodations. Maybe you're going to have to go out and find a job that will limit your lifting and you don't have to lift more than 50 pounds. So Mm -hmm. common question um, more difficult in practice than it is an explanation. Hmm. So there, there are ways that you can get back to work, but it's, it's not really, you're not really handed, you're not insured to have a job at the place where you got injured at, you know, as, as when you get, yeah, there's no guarantee. Um, very important. I'm sure for some people to know, cause you know, there's, there's a lot of times where, you just kind of won't know the answer. And, and some people just kind of sit back and say, Oh, it'll be fine. 
uh, and then certain things come as a surprise or a crisis in that case. A good doctor will be counseling their patient, you know, hey, start talking to your employer. Here's what we're thinking you're going to need long term. Have the discussion. You know, let's get this out on the table and get it fixed and move on. Okay. And um, what if I don't? What if I don't agree with the results of my exam? Say that you know the the at the at the end of our exam we reach we reach maximal medical improvement and uh, the degree to which we have reached that or sort of the the measurement. I think it's WPI, whole person impairment. Uh, how how. Uh, it, how how impaired we are after we've reached MMI will determine uh, how the claim settles and sort of future care and all sorts of things like that. Well, what if what if I think that I'm quite worse off than the uh, insurance or the or the uh, PTP seems to think? What if they say, you know, I I have one percent whole person impairment where I feel like I have twenty or something to that degree. Yeah, and, and that's a harder question. That's actually why RateFast was founded, was to try to help the stakeholders really understand what the um, injury uh, impairment is in a claim. Probably one of the most you know contested parts of workers' compensation is the impairment rating value or the functional loss value of the claim. Hmm. Probably right behind, um, still number one, though, always is um, access to treatment, um, you know, the a patient and or the doctor um, feel that, you know, the utilization review process is not allowing treatment and then there's appeals and stuff. That's, that's in my experience, always number one. There's a contested over requested treatment being denied. Hmm. Close behind it, number two, is what is the correct impairment rating on this claim? Um, and, and it's a great question because impairment ratings are only as accurate as the data in them. And then once you have the data, you have to have someone who knows what they're doing on how to, you know, appropriately and evenly apply the administrative rule set. Um, unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of states do not have any like administrative tests or requirements that show competency of the medical providers in creating the impairment value. And the mm. problem is, is when you have a wrong impairment value or an incorrect impairment value, everyone's upset, as they should be, because they're not getting the right value on the claim, you know, yeah. regardless of what, what your stakeholder position is. Yeah. So, so you know, the, you know, California, again, we're just using this as an example, does have um, a second opinion system. It's called the Qualified Medical Exam, and it's a, a system set up and administered by the state, by the Industrial um, Division of Workers' Comp Medical Unit, which is under the, the, um, uh, the Department of Industrial Relations. Hmm. And they administer tests and have doctors take a test. Um, it's an administrative test on the rules of California and the work comp rules. Unfortunately, it is not a test on the competency of AMA guides understanding. Hmm. Uh, so, but, but regardless, these, these doctors are um, allowed to see patients, um, create a report, um, create an impairment value, and that can be brought, you know, forward to the stakeholders to figure out if it's better than the report that's been turned in. Hmm. And it's not that the, the, the second opinion is more valuable or has more like legal weight because hmm. both the primary treater and the QME have equal equal weight in their opinion. So it really comes down to who writes a more complete report. Mm. Who took better measurements, um, who asked more questions, who asked more relevant questions. Um, and then, as always, being able to show your work. 
Um, and, and if it's simple and objective and compelling and defensible, you know, in the rule set, California, we use the AMA Guides 5th edition, then that will become the report of record for the settlement. Hmm. That was one thing that I didn't know before. I didn't know that the uh, the the weight of the QME and the PTP, their, their opinions both were on the same level. So, yeah. okay. It used um, to be before um, that the PTP had the strongest weight in the reporting system, but that was changed. And of course it was done administratively. Because mm-hmm. there's no, just as there's no way to prove the competence of the uh, primary treating right. physician, there's, there's, you know, just as much built into the law, no way to prove the competence of the QME. Uh, Unfortunately, yeah, you know, in my opinion, yeah, the QME should, should be showing some competency in their, in their field or chapter of the rating that they do. But as of now, not required. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, we, we touched on this a little bit um, and it does, it does beg a little more understanding. Um, So what does settlement mean exactly? Yeah, we did talk about this. You know, settlement, I think, is a universal term. It's a nice term that I use to open up the discussion with patients about impairment reports because, you know, people think of settlement as sort of uh, a final process or, you know, things coming to a close, or like a settlement in a car accident or a settlement in a lawsuit. I mean, settlement, just everyone can touch that topic with their understanding and say, okay, this is like a major change point in you know, what's going on here. And so, so sometimes people will bring that up as a settlement and I try to redirect the discussion saying, well, yeah, you know, we are talking about a settlement, but it's, you know, it may not be a permanent, you know, settlement, meaning there may be ongoing benefits to you, um, but it's a settlement nonetheless. Or, you know, as I said, in the, in the event of a compromise release, if you do choose to have a settlement like that, that is a true settlement and everything's done and you just move on with the settlement you've agreed to or signed. Um, but, but, you know, it does mean different things to different people. It's a common question just because, like I said, a lot of us in the daily lexicon use settlement and, um, and people bring it up and think about impairment reports as a form of settlement. And it is. It is. All of the above accounted for, you know, or, or even one of the, the above accounted for, I guess, uh, any of the things that have been asked previously, um, you know, Will, will care be stopped? What if I can't return to work? Uh, what if I don't agree with the exam? All of these could individually warrant the need to bring in an attorney. Now, if I get injured at work, off the get-go, should I have an attorney? Well, it's a common question. And, and unfortunately, sometimes doctors answer questions that they should. Mm. So, you know, should I get an attorney is really a legal question and it's a legal decision for the patient um for the doctor to say you know hey um you're not getting what you need i think you should go get an attorney um you know that's that's overstepping the the boundaries of the doctor it's a legal question Mm. so when people ask me um you know hey i'm your patient should i get an attorney my answer is always this i say um Well, you know, the people who choose to get attorneys are often people that either feel that they're not getting their needs met in the workers' compensation system, um, you know, set up by the standard regulations. Um, Some of those people choose to get attorneys. Um, Also, sometimes the system is overwhelming for an individual with all the paperwork, notification letters, appointments, QMEs, and stuff like that. 
and they just choose to not want to navigate the system anymore, which, you know, admittedly can be very overwhelming. Those people may choose to get an attorney. Um, as I said before, um, you know, the number one reason, um, you know, that people have frustration with the work comp system is, is um, seemingly their perception of denied access to care. You know, that is, in my experience, again, the number one reason patients choose to get attorneys. So I always table it that, hey, at any point, you have a right to get an attorney. Um, if you choose to do that, by all means, that's your right. I'm not going to say, I, as your doctor, am telling you to go get an attorney because I'm not getting the treatment authorized that I need to do. I don't do that because it would be inappropriate for a doctor to do that. Now, you know, in, in almost any state, you can also tell the patient, we have the Division of Industrial Relation for the state of Minnesota, let's say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're unsure what your rights are, that's why these entities are set up by the state. So start there. Go talk to, you know, someone at the Division of Industrial Relations. Find out what your rights are. Um, find out what it means to become represented. Because when you when you get an attorney, it radically changes the way that your case, you know, goes through the system. Because in California, for instance, the injured worker can no longer talk to the insurance company directly. They have to go through their employee, through their, through their attorney and often the insurance company will have an attorney represent them, and um, and it becomes a much more complicated communication process, um, you know, than than operating without an attorney. The, the system was set up for first of all to get care to injured workers, hmm. and by bringing attorneys in, you know, to the claim, you know, we're still trying to do that, but it but it radically changes the timelines on you know communication and results. Hmm. Yeah. So getting back to that, <laughs> the, the answer is, you know, that's something that the injured worker is ultimately going to have to determine. Um, the stakeholders, um, and I will say for the most part, the insurance companies are very good about this. If the, if the injured worker is asking, you know, hey, do I need an attorney? Um, we always just direct them first to the state level. Go talk, find out what your rights are. And secondly, if you believe you need to become represented, by all means, it's your right and you should do so. Mm. So, you know, that's, that's the, that's the attorney answer. No one can legally tell you whether, or I guess, you know, people, many people can legally tell you whether or not you should have an attorney, but I think a lot of people turn to their, their primary treating physician as sort of a confidant. It's like, you've been here every step of the way. What do you think doc? And then, you know, that's, it's specifically the doc, it's the doctor can't tell you. So, yeah. Uh, you know, and there, and there are also patients who have had, you know, multiple work comp claims and they've always had an attorney. So mm-hmm. as soon as they file it with their employer, they just notify their attorney, hey, you're coming along with me on this case. Here's another case. And, you know, that happens too. So, so your personal attorney, uh, they don't necessarily have to be a workers' comp attorney in order to sort of represent you for this case. It could, it could be your personal attorney all along. That doesn't necessarily mean that they will specialize in work comp. Well, for the, mo- for the most part, um, they, these are work comp specialists. You know, they are identified by the state, at least in California, as being, you know, work comp certified or work comp specialists mm. um, for workers' comp. And it's basically all they do. So it's not like, you know, using your estate attorney to represent you for your work comp claim or your tax attorney 
you know, is going to help you, you know, get treatment for your work comp shoulder plan. That's not going to happen. It's, it's going to basically say, you know, uh, you know, Dr. William, uh, you know, attorney William Smith, workers' compensation help center. You know, that's going to be the, that'll be the title on the building where, you know, these, these injured workers go. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I really think my tax attorney could come through on this one. Oh, maybe he could, or she could. I don't know. <laughs> Do you have any closing words on what one should expect after they reach impairment that we haven't covered already? No, just in closing, I would say, you know, um, review of all these questions. It's really important. Stakeholders understand what an impairment report is, how it's going to change the character of the claim, um, how it's going to play out for the future care access. Um, of the claim. And, you know, most importantly, um, you know, thinking about how to get an accurate impairment value, which is why uh, I and we discovered uh, RateFast, particularly for California, but uh, also other states' impairment rating. It's here to help stakeholders get uh, even consistent and objective results. So a lot of these problems can go away. For more information on impairment reports, or to learn more about RateFast WorkComp Suite, visit our blog at blog.rate-fast.com. To try the RateFast impairment rating software for yourself, visit rate-fast.com.